Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. And uh, let's just get into it, right? right. Yeah. Um, I got I, I to gotta get out of here. I, I got to get tonight over with because I still haven't packed. I'm going to Mexico tomorrow. Mexico? Yep. Uh, going, to, going to Cabo. Nice. Yeah. My hip, my, my, uh, I've never been to Cabo. I've been to, as listeners know, I've been to um, uh, Sammy Hagar's Cabo Wabo restaurant right, many, yes. many times. Yes. Um, uh, if you're a listener who actually doesn't know, there, there's a Cabo Wabo cantina at Hollywood and Highland, which is where AFI Fest is, and it's where TCM Fest is, and it's where Dances with Films is. So there's like multiple times a year that I happen to be, and they also do regular, like somewhat regular, I feel like not as much as they used to, like studio press screenings, like all media, like week of release uh, screenings um, at, at that theater. So I find myself near the Cabo Wabo a lot, and it's basically like I love margaritas, mm-hmm. you get free chips and salsa, and they have free Wi Fi, and so. I do spend a lot of time at the Cabo Wabo Cantina. Um, not a big fan of Halen fan or Sammy Hagar fan, yeah. but this is all to say I will report back next week as to how much the real Cabo right, <laughs> resembles right. or at least resembles the feel yeah. of Oddly Sammy enough, Hagar's Cabo Wabo Cantina. Free Wi-Fi. <laughs> all over. <laughs> all right. So um, let's just start talking about movies. Okay. Uh, this one I had actually... No, uh, that's right. Okay. So we're starting... Um, with one that you and I have both seen, Indeed. which is the new Tomb Raider. Yes. Uh, have you ever? Uh, I feel like I used to do this more when I was younger and had uh, and was more conceited when I'd watch a movie and just think like, oh, here's what. If I were yeah. directing this movie, here's what I would have done. Sure. But sometimes it's a movie that I feel like is like, uh, okay. You ever see a person who you're like that person looks like. Ewan McGregor, but also looks nothing like Ewan McGregor at the same time. About you know Ewan I mean? McGregor specifically? Yes. <laughs> no, I just like, I, I'm just saying like that person looks very much like a celebrity and nothing like a celebrity. Yes. And so I feel like Tomb Raider is one of those movies that I won't, I won't really say it's good, but I will say it's much closer to being good than you would think leaving at the end. I feel like it's not that far. I feel like the people involved in the movie, especially the people on screen, mm. Um, with maybe the exception of Dominic West, who I think is kind of hamming it up uh, um, too much. Um, but they, that's another thing. Okay. I feel that like especially, okay, Alicia Vikander and Walton Goggins are really trying. Mm-hmm. They're really doing a good job with their performances, except the dialogue is terrible throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. And Dominic West is the, this is what I felt leaving Tomb Raider. It was like that movie needed to be, either less corny than it is or it needed to be way cornier. And I feel like that's where Dominic West is. He's on the other spectrum. If he's making this sort of like more of this, like throwback adventure serial type of Indiana Jones type of thing. Yes. Um, anyway, uh, I, I found myself really frustrated and I've been thinking about Tomb Raider a lot and thinking like, couldn't I, like, this is a big Warner brothers, like studio release. You couldn't pay another screenwriter to have a, to take a pass at this. And like, what do they call it? Like, uh, punch it up. Yeah. You know, anyway, what did yeah, you just, think? you know, get Tony Gilroy in there or something. And, <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. So this is, uh, an instance where every once in a while, like if you follow me on letterboxd every once okay. in a while, you'll see like, Oh, he's rated a, hmm, a newer film that I would not have 
thought he was interested in. It's like, uh-huh. that means that the, I've, I want to see a movie with my movie pass, but I've run out of anything I'm really that interested in. And so, but that's when, that's when things can really shine. Uh, because yeah, some expe- magic can happen. Yeah. My expectations are very low. Yeah. And literally as the, as the lights went down on Tomb Raider, I was like, what the hell am I doing? Here? <laughs> um, but I, and because of that, I enjoyed it tremendously. You're right. That dialogue is a atrocious, uh-huh. but and so- every and every beat listeners we're going to spoil Tomb Raider for you. When her dad shows up, I'm like, Oh, how exciting. He's not going to last. <laughs> like he's, he's going to go out probably pretty nobly. I didn't think he was going to last as long as he did. Yeah. He's around for a while. But, um, uh, but like, but, you just know that's going to happen. Um, and they couldn't like, here's things. Here's what I would have wanted. I would have wanted some more jokes. Yes. Not there's parts in the movie that like have the cadence of jokes. Yeah. <laughs> there's a whole like, cause there's a whole like booby trap Indiana Jones type thing. There's a the thing with the floor falling away. And then yeah. like they get out of the room and the one guy who wasn't in there is like, where's the floor? What happened to the floor? And she's just like, she like waits a beat and she's like, it's gone. And it's like, wait, this seemed like you were trying to set up a joke here. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't. You just said it's gone, which yeah. we knew. Yeah. You just you just caught that character up on what we the set piece we spend the last three minutes watching. And if you had literally said nothing, it would have been more of a joke uh-huh. than when because now it sounds like you're talking about a person. <laughs> it's gone. It didn't make it the floor. Um, <laughs> and then um, another thing, I think I don't know. I I, I never really played. Tomb Raider. I never, really, I never played Tomb Raider. Yeah. I don't, I'm not a video game. Uh, I don't know much about video. I games. played Pitfall on Atari. Is it like that? <laughs> but I wish I would have seen. I think it would have made uh, the movie a lot more fun if the puzzles that she had to solve made sense to us as a viewer. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? If there was the, built into the screenplay, if it was like we're understanding what she's doing because the whole thing with the floor did you? I didn't even get what that like. She has to solve it by putting the, like the different colored like. I, like rocks in there, like in I, a certain I picked order up on that. Yeah. It, it, it like, it wasn't clear to me what exactly she was trying to do. And that, and that made me think that there's later, there's a big one. That's like, she has to solve a big puzzle and it doesn't even show you what the, it just shows like a montage of her, like turning wheels right, or whatever. Yeah. And it's like, I wish this would have been a more fun movie if, if we could like be solving this along with her. So what do you're you know saying what I mean? is it should be a game which it was. That's kind of what I'm saying yeah. is like, but think of it like a, like a con man movie where like, yes, yes. the movie is always one step ahead of you. But as you figure it out, you're like, Oh, you know? And so some element of like almost, or, or like a whodunit type of thing, some element of yeah. that kind of mystery and reveal would have made the movie a lot, a lot of fun. And to go with Indiana Jones, which this clearly was meant to evoke, you know, when he is figuring things out, he Harrison well, let me is follow really, the, really the, good at like having kind of an inner monologue that he is verbalizing. Yeah. And so we're following his thought process like, yeah, this checks out. I believe it. Uh, and and it feels like we are going along with him. Whereas in that sequence, she's like, I guess she knows what she's doing. Like, it's mostly just that in yeah. that moment. But here's yeah. the thing. Wait, okay. I, want, I want to follow the, the Indiana Jones thread back because okay. this Tomb Raider is based on a remake of a game. It's not based on the original Tomb Raider. It's based on the 2013 Tomb Raider. Okay. Which is inspired by the success of Uncharted, from what I understand. Oh, okay. Um, which, uh, which is an Indiana Jones inspired game. Yes. Um, the only reason I've only, I've ever heard of Uncharted, one of the Uncharted games, 
I think maybe Uncharted 3. I can't remember. Someone have to tell me. Um, my name's in the credits. What? Because <laughs> I was a PA at a place that did motion capture, mostly for oh, video okay, games. Yeah. Like a lot of people who were like, they would that they would do the mocap for video games came in and I guess... Uh, and I, most of them didn't bother to credit me. So I'm kind of like happy with the uncharted people for like bothering you, to credit you me. Your IMDb page. You should. That's no, this is how I found out. Okay. Is that it was on my IMDb. <laughs> it might not be there anymore. I haven't been on my IMDb. I, I keep forgetting. I, I forgot that I had one. I have like two credits as a PA three with this one. Um, and someone else told me like, Hey, do you know, on your IMDb, it says you worked on Uncharted whatever. Um, and that's why. I also worked on the Jackass video game. Did not get credited in that. <laughs> you mean on IMDb or in the actual game? I don't think either. Oh, that's too bad. Um, yeah, but... Uh, well, you could add your name and then just say uncredited. And then people are like, oh my gosh, what did he do? You <laughs> yeah, know. what did I do? I took the tinfoil off the catering, <laughs> you know, so, so Steve-O could get his... You know, uh, which he like threw in his pants or something like that. <laughs> no, um, those, I mean, I have had a weird number of occasions to come across the jackass guys because there's that. And then also when I worked at a, I was a PA in a different movie <clears throat> in 2006 on the Paramount lot. Mm-hmm where they were shooting at least the studio stuff for Jackass part two. Okay. I never saw the second Jackass, but I guess there's some stuff that was like not done out in the field. They actually did stuff in the studio. Okay. Some more, uh, I guess, I don't know, heavily produced stuff. And I can tell you without getting into specifics, every time I have seen one of those guys, like when it's not time for them to be on, mm-hmm. they just look fucking exhausted. Oh, I don't doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> just, <sighs> um, <laughs> Okay, back to Tomb Raider. So here's okay. So yes, it is structurally completely predictable. Dialogue, who cares? There is. Uh, it feels like it should have had more of a sense of fun. Certainly, the villain. I, I think Walton Goggins does a fine job, but I feel like the villains should be more heightened, like in Indiana Jones, and, uh, because there's 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 so much left on the table with that villain. Yeah, because he's got like kids and like, it, well, it's clear that there. what you're trying what they're what the idea is is that he and Dominic West are foils. They both ended up in the same place and had sort of the same situation. Yeah, and one of them chose his family over the world, and one of them chose the world over his family. Yeah, and it would be it would have been nice to have seen that conflict more. Yeah, uh, to have to see. Oh, the Walton Goggins villain be a little more conflicted because he, he, I don't think he started out as a bad guy. He just, at some point decided like getting back to my kids is worth anything to me, even if yeah. it means in enslaving fishermen and killing people in cold blood and all this stuff. Yeah. I just need to get back to my kids. That, that would have been a much more interesting note to play. I don't know. I, I can't believe it's been over a week since I saw it and I'm like still so amped up about how many missed opportunities there are in this movie. Story wise. Yes. Action wise, the film really worked for me. Um, whether it be that bike chase through that was great. or whatever, I think. And okay, so this is something I said about the fifth Mission Impossible. I like any movie, any action or suspense, whatever it is, any sequence where they, you know, they leave it all on the field. Like uh-huh. they, there is nothing unexplored. And that sequence with the plane and the waterfall, yeah, it, like. At any moment, they could have been like, okay, that's the end of the sequence. She's fine now. <laughs> right. But they just keep finding new ways to yeah. imper- imperil her, right? Yeah. 
And I feel like it's great. I like that sequence a lot. Me too. Um, there, there's a lot of action that I like. And I also really like that. I think it would have been, I haven't seen the other Tomb Raider movies, but I can imagine making Laura Croft like some, just this character who always, who can do no wrong. She's just better than everybody else. That's very much what the first, I didn't see this cradle of life or whatever, Uh, but the first one, which is called Laura Croft Tomb Raider, not Tomb Raider got into this argument with a manager at my video store because I kept trying to file it under L because the name of the movie is Laura Croft Tomb Raider. Anyway, that's very much what she is in that. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me at all. And with this, they really did seem to be going the John McClane, Indiana Jones route where she is learning as she goes and she makes a lot of mistakes. The movie literally opens with her getting her ass kicked. Yeah. <laughs> it's a nice yeah. sequence. I like that. Yeah. And I so, was really on board with the movie during that whole opening scene of her in the locker room and eating the apple. Yeah. It's a whole great little scene. And I was like, Oh, this is going to be cool. And yeah. I don't and know. I think I, I liked some of the mythology as well. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's the thing is like, as far as when they discover like the remains of this queen or whatever, and you discover the, the story, the actual story behind it, it's a nice parallel to what you're talking about. Like the missed opportunity story wise, as far as choosing mm-hmm. to make a personal sacrifice so that you can say right. the, the, you know, for the greater good. Right. And I feel like it's right there. It's just waiting for you. It's, you've got a perfect little metaphor and you could have explored it more, but you didn't. But overall I was, I'd say I was pleasantly surprised because I, I just did not expect anything of this movie. Mm-hmm. For a solid, not merely when the lights went down, but for a solid, like, every trailer that played, and I don't remember what they were, but every tra- trailer that played, I was like, boy, I wish I were watching that right now. <laughs> really? But then, but then the movie started, and, and it had me. I was, yeah. I was interested, I was invested, I groaned at several lines, but I still enjoyed myself. All right, uh, let's move on to the second movie I saw. I, I filled in a huge gap, which is something that I've been doing a lot over the past couple of years as people who listen to the movie journal know. Um, but I finally saw all three plus hours of Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. Indeed. Yes. Um, you've seen it. I've not. Oh, you haven't. Okay. No. Oh, then I'm ahead of you on this one. So at this point, the only like major Kubrick I haven't seen is Lolita. I also haven't seen fear and desire or killer's kiss. Yes. Um, I also have not seen Lolita. Okay. So I am ahead of you. All right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, yes. Uh, Barry Lyndon, uh, I, I loved it. Um, it's, uh, I think, uh, it's funny that it's, the, there are two 18th century picaresques that I'll be talking about on, on, on this movie journal. Uh, and they take such different approaches. Um, but this one, the, the first one, I think, um, if there is a weak point, a weak spot in the movie, I think it's actually Ryan O'Neill, not I, that he, I could see that. Uh, I mean, I, I just, uh, um, and I, as I usually, I read about it. I don't think he's entirely happy with the way the, the with the final edit of the, of the movie. So maybe, um, he was playing the character in a different way and, and that's why, but he does seem kind of blank a lot of the time. Um, but, uh, that's okay. It works out, I think for Kubrick because he's, he sort of gets to have the, be the kind uh, Barry gets to be the kind of, character that the whole world in the movie like revolves around and he doesn't have to necessarily be that dynamic. Um, basically he's, uh, I guess you'd call him an anti-hero. He repeatedly makes awful choices. Hmm. Uh, but, um, what I like about the movie, uh, and the, you know, 
Kubrick was not um, a stranger to cynicism. Um, one of the things I like about the movie is that he makes bad choices, but it has a very much a rise and fall narrative. And it even has, it has an intermission and the second half is clearly the fall of Barry Lyndon. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, he makes bad, uh, bad choices. He makes dumb choices, but he continues to rise because he happens to be very good at violence, specifically the kind of codified, seemingly sanitized violence of this society where there's protocol where it's like, I'm, you know, we're going to duel with pistols or with right. swords. Or there's going to be fisticuffs that have certain rules or whatever. And he keeps winning at these things. And that kind of helps him rise because even though he's a totally, he's in kind of a, he's a very selfish antihero, um, uh, except in the second half when he has a son, he's the only person in the entire world that he seems to care about. Um, uh, but he excels, at violence. And then his undoing in the second half is that he behaves violently outside of those rules. He mm-hmm. behaves violently in a way that, that the high society would look down at as being, uh, undecorous or, um, thuggish or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and that sort of seals his undoing. It's a really interesting structure. I have seen the final scene, uh, or the final duel, uh, of the film. Okay. Um, yeah, there's more after as, that, but yeah, as part of the uh, Kubrick exhibit at the uh, at LACMA uh, a couple years ago, oh, okay. a few years ago, I guess. So and, yeah, uh, and it looked really uh, good and very slow. Um, <laughs> so, I, I, I did not find the movie to be like, very. But I mean, by that point, there's so much weight behind that duel, right. um, and behind Barry's choices in the duel um, that what you probably saw as slow being on its own is like filled with portent when you're seeing it like in the midst of the movie. Well, I didn't seemed, find the movie to be slow. It seemed very, no, what I like, I liked about it because like, it just seemed so deliberate and purposeful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was like, Oh, this seemed like a big deal. <laughs> but this is very important. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, the movie is also beautifully shot and, um, famously most of the indoor scenes were lit only with candlelight. Hmm. Um, and I would say as this is part of my criterion or my home video catch up, still doing the criterions. Um, I finished them. I'll finish them off in this movie journal and then we'll be on to other okay. uh, home video. And part of what I'm going to keep calling the Blu-ray spring cleaning. Yeah. <laughs> um, cause spring's only just started. Um, That's true. you wouldn't know it from the weather. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's frightful, David. <laughs> um, Anyway, um, I will say, so on the Criterion Blu-ray, I, I would say the, it is re- very cool that they shot with um, with just these very fast lenses and, you know, a f- high-speed film, whatever they used, um, and an open aperture or whatever. But you can kind of tell, like, the you can kind of tell how open the aperture is because the the faces lose a little definition in those, in those scenes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, although apparently again, this is just the reading I was doing. Apparently like the, the, um, the, the candles were a specific type that had like three wicks and had wax that was meant to burn brighter. Hmm. Um, so that would 
make more light for them to chew with. It's kind of cheating. <laughs> and also, apparently, it meant they burned so fast that they would they were they went through candles like crazy uh, um, uh, while they were making the movie. Anyway, sixty five percent of the budget. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I can't remember if I had more to say about it. But you can read my, my review on the website. Uh, okay. That's it. What's uh, what's next for you? Okay. So, well, I already said Tomb Raider. Right. Okay. So we're yeah, treating. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Right. Uh, so I watched a documentary that um, that I believe you've seen, inspired by a futile and stupid gesture. I watched Drunkstone, Brilliant Dead. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> which I liked much, much more. Uh, unsurprisingly, uh, even though there are element, there are certain story elements and meta qualities to um, a futile and stupid gesture. I feel like just some some things just lend themselves more to documentaries and maybe it's because the story of Doug Kenny mm-hmm. is so cliche. I recognize it's a man's life, but if you're going to dramatize that when it comes right down to it, it's like he was a brilliant guy who flew too close to the sun, did a lot of drugs and died. <laughs> I'm I feel bad that that's the real person that yeah. that I'm talking about, but it, it's such a standard thing. But if you put it in documentary form, it works a little it, somehow it, it doesn't seem quite as predictable um but also you're able to watch and listen to and read some of the actual national lampoon which i think makes all the difference in the world um because Mm -hmm. you know whether it be like if you were to make a movie about a, a musical genius but you actually didn't hear a lot of the music that he uh, or she composed, then right. it's like, okay, yeah, who cares? And I, in futile and stupid gesture, I'm sorry to be thinking about them in context of no, each other, but I'm sure that's that why one you watched, exists because yeah. of the other. That's certainly why I watched them. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, so like with futile and stupid gesture, you don't really see much of hmm. the, the lampoon. And even if you do, you mostly see performances and you're seeing performers, play the performers Mm -hmm. it's like well it's not going to be quite as good no matter how good your john belushi is it's not going to be as good as john belushi and so uh so i think this benefits heavily from that and it definitely got gave me more of an appreciation for just how outlandish national lampoon was and how uh far they were willing to go and uh and i was you know i i it's interesting to see how many people started there. It's like SCTV or anything like that. Just, it's one of those things that kicked off a lot of careers. Even, you know, I did not know that noted, uh, conservative thinker and, and humorist PJ O'Rourke. I did not know he started national lampoon and that when he took over, it actually became more juvenile because if you hear him now, Uh he's like, he's like, you know, the very, uh, very crusty and stiff and very proper and all that. And he just yeah. has a certain demeanor to him that you wouldn't not, think not uh, to be mean. Cause I don't, I actually kind of like PJ O'Rourke, but mm-hmm. anytime you hear someone described as a humorist, that means like, yeah, almost funny, like not really funny. Yeah. <laughs> funny ish. <laughs> it's what is it? The it's uh, NPR funny, except this. Yeah. It, what is the, there's this, I forget what it is, but there's a, I think it's the Simpsons where Homer becomes smart or whatever. And he's hearing, and he's listening to like something like that. And, uh, and it's like, well, this next, uh, composer might not be like Glenn Gould or whatever, but it's good as Gould. And then <laughs> Homer goes, oh. <laughs> I feel like that's how you laugh at a humorist. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. But, uh, 
but yeah, so I, I thought it was interesting. It's nothing. It's not remarkably compelling. I liked it. I think that's the. It's the better way to tell that story. But um, you know, it's it, it does the job, and that's really all you can say. You saw it, right? Um, yes, I did. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember not thinking it was that yeah. great. It's fine. Um, yeah. Uh, speaking of documentaries, okay. I watched uh, Barbet Schroeder's, I'm not sure how you say his name, uh, General Idi Amin Dada. Had you seen it before? No. Cool. Have you seen it? Yeah. I think it's more like, um, it's more, I'm more like, I felt like I was more marveling at the access that he got than I was the film. Like, I'm not actually sure that it just seems to like go for 90 minutes and then end and then it has a really dumb final voiceover that kind of like instructs you how to think about it. I don't know if you remember that part. I don't remember it. Um, that kind of like sat with me wrong. Um, but it's still pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I think there's maybe a reason that, uh, criterion like upgraded it to Blu-ray and put it out again, you know, in the oh, past, yeah. <laughs> you know, year or, or so this was only, uh, last fall, uh, or even this winter. I can't remember. Um, uh, cause there is so much of like the, uh, there's so much Trump in, in him, in the way that he obviously organizes military parades for himself, which yeah. is a big thing, uh, now, but also there's a part early in the movie. I'm not sure when was the last time you saw it. It was years uh, ago. He's, he's presenting an award to like a sports team that won a, you know, won a championship or whatever. And he can't stop with the asides about his own athletic prowess. Yeah. That's all he can like can talk about. Um, and he just, it's just like stream of thought with stream of consciousness with him. Um, uh, and it's, um, it would be funny if he weren't, you know, if he hadn't, uh, murdered probably hundreds of thousands of people. This was a shot, uh, only a couple, two or three years after he took office, I mean, yeah. literally took office in a coup yeah. um, and declared military rule. And, and so, and obviously there is that Barbara Schroeder or whatever is aware of the murders, especially since we see an execution first thing in the movie, it's yeah. incredibly uh, grisly. Um, but I don't know that he, that even Barbara Schroeder, Schroeder would have known at the time how, how many Ugandans, uh, we're going to die. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating portrait of a, uh, of, of a, uh, terrifying man child. Yeah. Um, did you see last King of Scotland? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Forrest Whitaker like toned it down to play the character. <laughs> I think he thought like, look, if I play the guy as is, they're going to make fun of me. Yeah. So I yeah. can't do that. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the last King of Scotland is one of those movies like The Wrestler, where it's like there's a great central performance. I'm not sure the movie itself is actually that great. I to think me. I, the, I think the film is functional and just built around that performance. Like, but it, like, do you even remember? More, like, probably more so than The Wrestler, I think. Yeah, but do you even remember like the James McAvoy was it Kerry Washington like romance angle yeah. in Last King of Scotland? It's like all you remember is Forrest Whitaker. Yeah. I remember James McAvoy a little bit, but yeah, I definitely just remember that. And, um, it would be interesting actually someday to do an episode about, uh, you know, cause we, last week we talked about like the way presidents are portrayed certain presidents, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, it'd be interesting to do, uh, an episode of movies about tyrants because, you know, that, that HBO movie Stalin starring Robert Duvall, it's so similar. Like oh, after a while right. they're all kind I, I have to assume, of course they're, uh, I don't mean to say, ah, they're all the same. Like they're, you know, 
some punk kids you know. They did terrible things, but there is this childish, not childlike, uh-huh. that, that's a sense of wonder. Yeah. Uh, they're childish, and like there's nothing worse than somebody who is childish and has tremendous power. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of the reasons why, as much as lately I've been kind of immersing myself in uh, Last Jedi hate. Uh, I don't know why, um, except the, and I think there are people who have a legitimate beef, but most people are just like, Kylo Ren, he's, oh, somebody said, like, oh, he's just a little bitch. It's like, yeah, and he's really powerful. Think of how that, how frightening that is. Yeah, that's, that's why point. he's, that's why he's interesting. Yeah. You know? And so like, so yeah, it's, it's, it really, I, when I saw the criteria is putting it, cause I knew they had put it out before, but when they put it out on Blu-ray, I was just like, maybe this is one I want to watch. Uh, maybe this is one I want to buy. And I thought like, why would I want to buy that? <laughs> except that, it, except yeah. that it's just infinitely interesting. Yeah. Um, my favorite positive Twitter review I read of, the last Jedi was uh, Star Wars is dead. Long live Star Wars. <laughs> hey, that's not bad. Yeah, I know, right? It's, I'll take that. Uh, really, really applies. Okay. Uh, next up, or this movie comes out in a week or two. And oh, man, it's so beautiful and so bittersweet. And it is also so crushingly sad. Like, I want to warn people this movie is great and you should see it, but it is so sad. Uh, it's called Lean on Pete. Oh yeah. Um, and it's from Andrew Hay who made weekend and 45 years. Yeah. Uh, and this one is, um, his, I guess his American debut, um, uh, based on a novel about a, uh, teenage boy who has a single dad, um, um, who's, uh, apparently played by someone from that, uh, Vikings, the history show. I don't uh-huh. know. Uh, I don't know him, but, um, uh, and the dad is like, he's not a bad dad so much as he's a fuck up. Yeah. But he like, he really cares about his kid. He's just bad at being a dad. He's not around a lot. Um, and he also is having an affair with a married woman that he works like who works at the company that he works for. Um, play, uh, she's played by a- Amy Simons. And, oh. uh, at one point in the movie, her husband shows up and beats the ever loving shit out of this kid's dad and he has to go to the hospital. And so the kid gets a job, the closest place that he can, which is at the racetrack, which happens to be at like at the end of his neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he ends up working for Steve Buscemi, who is a guy who owns racehorses, yeah. um, and kind of on the low rung of things. These aren't, he's not like a rich, like yeah. Arabian racehorse type of thing. This is like the last stop before the glue factory type of racehorses. Um, and uh chloe 70 plays his jockey or one of the one of his jockeys um and uh the boy ends up um developing a bond with one of steve Buscemi's horses the horse's name is lean on beat Mm -hmm. that's where the movie comes from um it's like sea biscuit (laughs) Um, that's what you're telling me no, I, I don't want to like the movie. The movie ends up changing and becomes kind of uh, uh, more than a little bit of a road movie at one point, but a road movie in like a, mo- a modern day Western sense that takes place. Um, you know, this is in Portland, Oregon, and he's and at, a, at a certain point, he's eventually trying to get to uh, Laramie, uh, Wyoming. Um, and so it becomes a, a road movie. And I don't know what to say. Like, I don't want to give the movie away but you have to know it's incredibly sad and incredibly beautiful i saw Um, a trailer for it when i saw lady bird and 
clearly the studio wanted it to be something that it is not. Um, like, I mean, the studio they, in this case is a twenty four, and they're usually hands off. But well, in terms guess, of in terms of marketing, as, as ter- in terms of marketing, like it's like, oh, okay, this this is playing because at first I thought like this looks kind of cheesy, but then like when I saw who directed it and just little little slight the slightest strains yeah. of melancholy, I'm like, I'll bet this is devastating. Yeah, <laughs> um, is it devastating? Uh, yeah, but also it's. It's beautiful and it, it is a, it's ultimately very heartwarming, um, but you got to get through some some really painful shit. Um, and in, so much of it is in this kid's performance. Uh, his name's Charlie um, Plummer. His name's Charlie Plummer. He was in All the Money in the World, um, even though he's not related yeah. to Christopher Plummer. No but he, he played the grandson, the kidnapped kid. Um, and it's a it's the kind of uh, it's, it's a really internalized performance. You can tell this is a kid who is like, um, smart and sensitive, but also has never really had an outlet for any of those things. Mm-hmm. And, um, he, you, it's the kind of performance you can tell he's feeling a lot, just feeling a lot of things yeah. without the actor having to like, show you like there's not like fist clenching or anything like that it's all internal it's a really really great performance oh and also steve zahn shows up as a, as a homeless guy later and i oh, always right. love when steve zahn absolutely he has do you remember, like there are some actors that it's like they have a line that's so anyway there's a line in the movie that is it's in the trailer so i'll, I'll say what it is that is so so steve zahn that i wonder if he like improvised it mm-hmm. but uh you know, Charlie is like he's traveling to Laramie, um, or sorry, Charlie Plummer. I can't remember. I keep forgetting the, the, the character's name, but anyway, he's trying to get to Laramie. He's in, it's not clear what like town he's city he's in. And he like meets Steve Zahn and he's like, are there any jobs around here? And Steve Zahn just starts laughing <laughs> and then goes like stone face goes, yeah, there's a lot of jobs around here for homeless kids. <laughs> um, it's such a Steve Zahn moment. Uh, that I have to wonder if he, uh, you know, if he, if he ginned it up a little bit, <laughs> if he made some changes to make it more Steve Zahnish. Incidentally, uh, uh, listeners, if ever you get the chance, watch Joyride, uh-huh. then watch it with the commentary <laughs> because Steve Zahn is uh, a delight. Yeah. And rest in peace, Paul Walker. But Indeed. yeah, Steve Zahn chiding Paul Walker on the commentary is the funniest <laughs> thing. Uh, anyway, so yeah, Lena Pete is, uh, beautifully, it's beautifully, uh, shot as, as well. There's this sort of, uh, I would say like, I mean, all of Andrew Hayes films seem kind of, they seem kind of desaturated, but then not really. There's a kind of like watercolor oh, almost like, uh, and, and this especially because so much of it takes place at like racetracks at night. So you're seeing like the, but like the the sky is like deep black, but the mm-hmm. but the the these like sodium arc lights are kind of like dissipating out into mm-hmm. the blackness. It's a really cool, cool looking movie. It's I think it's it's a I already used the term deceptively earlier um, with Tomb Raider, but it's like a deceptively desaturated movie like it, oh, it, it like it, it, it at first glance it looks like maybe a lot of other indies but i think a lot of uh, a lot of time was put into uh time and care was put into the way the movie looks okay. i'm excited that it's good it's something that i yeah, was interested it, it really is um okay so and it's, next, long, it's long too though it's over two hours okay next up for me uh it's all rewatches at this point by which i mean the next two um i 
I recently did a, an escape room and afterwards really? was talking with some friends about the David Fincher film, The Game, uh, <laughs> appropriately. Sure. And so I rewatched The Game and I know you don't like it that much. I do love it. Yeah. I, it's just such a, it's just such a brilliantly crafted film. I think it's very well written. I think Michael Douglas, just in general, is an underrated actor. I forget how effective he can be. And I was reading Roger Ebert's review, and I don't, I don't remember if he, exactly how he phrased, but something like, "This is the type of character that only Michael Douglas can play," which is he's a he he is rich. He's ve- he's fiercely intelligent, very well spoken, incredibly entitled, mm-hmm. a total asshole, and yet very watchable and very likable. Like there aren't a lot of other people that can that can make that work. Um, and so when bad things are happening to him, on one hand you're like, yeah, that's what you get. On the other hand, you're like, oh no, I get, I want him to get out of this. You know, hmm. I want him to you like. I want him to be better. I want him to be a better person as opposed to, I just like watching bad things happen to this bad person. Um, and I feel like, and in, so in doing so it, it really get, he, he has the ability to get you on board with characters that you might not otherwise get on board with. Like he, Michael Douglas has played a lot of sleazeballs uh-huh. and that he can actually get you vaguely rooting for them, uh, is something I find fascinating. And so, uh, and also just from, as a Fincher film and with a really wonderful score by Howard Shore, by the way, um, it just, uh, it, it just really, really works for me. Um, and there are a couple moments from a writing standpoint there are a couple moments where it's just like, okay, the character should have caught on by now. He's hmm. smarter than this. Um, but, yeah, maybe I should watch it again because I didn't used to like any of that uh, early Fincher stuff. I've come around yeah. to some extent on Seven. I've like sort of learned how to yeah. um, meet the movie at its own level. Uh, I still don't like Fight Club, but I, I like going back and watching movies I didn't used to like. I'll say this. I'm not going to go into it because I don't want to make it a movie journal thing. I did rewatch Boogie Nights and I still didn't like it. So moving on (laughs) back to the game, which reminds me, everybody, you should follow me on Twitter uh, because I recently discovered the poll feature and I've been putting out a, I've been putting out this or that's, and I recently put out Boogie Nights uh, and, or Magnolia and uh, Magnolia definitely for me. Cause that one I, I didn't used to like either. I watched Magnolia two, three years ago and I was like, Oh, I was an idiot. Magnolia is great. And so I guess I kind of thought the same thing would happen with, boogie nights but it still feels like the way i felt 15 years ago boogie nights seems like a series of scenes in search of a movie to me uh i could see that i think i like it more than you do but to me yeah it's no contest between that and magnolia um but also i wanted to tell you uh the great website lataco.com okay uh which has really stepped up its game uh, it was it's already always been great i've been reading it the entire time i lived in los angeles but since la weekly got bought by those you know carpetbaggers mm-hmm. uh, and fired everyone um la weekly or la um la taco has really stepped up their reportage or whatever um and it's great but they did a, 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 a i meant to send you the link to this article they did a um locations of falling down 
as they are now like oh, writing nice. about right and they interviewed like the, the location scouts and production designers and stuff like that um and talked about the making of the movie and so you see like shots from the movie and you see like here's what that looks like now and some of it is um not at all changed and some of it is very different oh that's fun yeah um yeah send that to me when you get the chance um but uh yeah so i i'll say this because as you know i'm also not a huge fan of fight club and then panic groom bothers me on a lot of levels i I feel like this is definitely an interesting it's 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 i think very well paired with seven in that he's there are definitely some stylistic flourishes but i don't think i don't think fincher has yet stumbled onto the idea of excess which mm-hmm. he would find in Fight Club and then really exploit in uh, Panic Room. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like it's, a, it's an oddly... It's like when you watch Insomnia, the, day, the Christopher Nolan Insomnia, mm-hmm. where like the next thing he did was Batman Begins. But there was a time when he was actually a very small filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's like that. It's the calm before the storm. <laughs> and it's... Okay. It, it's it's shockingly restrained knowing what we would what he would eventually return to I think with Zodiac um but yeah anyway sorry we can move on let's move on because yeah I I, I want to like burn through these last two yeah. because I want to get out of here um but I don't want to give this next movie short shrift because I watched the movie the Tyler I know you watched a few years ago I'm not sure maybe more recently than that uh you watched it as a function of you and Josh going through all the best pictures on your other podcast all right. and I feel like you were kind of into this movie but not too into it okay. whereas I watched this movie the other night and oh my god I love this movie and I can't believe it won best picture 1963. Okay, yeah. Tony Richardson's Tom Jones. I was going to bring it up in reference to Barry Lyndon. And then, like, that's the would, other would it be 18th century picaresque that I watched. Like, imagine couldn't if Albert Finney had played, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, Barry Lyndon. But, uh, yeah, couldn't be, couldn't be more different than two movies. Yeah. But, oh my God. Like, I guess I knew that Tom Jones was a comedy. Yeah. But I guess I thought. I still thought it was something going to be something more traditional. I should have known having seen the other Tony Richardson movies I've seen, which I know you and I both saw look back in anger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I saw, um, the last criterion one that was put out a taste of honey, which I loved. Um, it turns out I'm just a big Tony Richardson fan. Um, and then I haven't seen hotel New Hampshire, which I think is one of his big ones. Um, there's a few other others in there. The loneliness of the long distance runner. I've never seen that anyway, but, um, I laughed my ass off throughout Tom Jones. It's pretty good. Um, the scene, the, it's such, it's such silly comedy so much of it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That I didn't expect. There's the scene of him and the woman flirtatiously eating a ridiculously large amount of food that yeah. goes on forever. Yes. That uh, is very sexual in its nature. Like, and, and, yeah, but eventually it gets like completely disgusting where like, yeah, like, he's got like she or she's got like a piece of like pear that like is stuck on her nose or whatever yeah. it, keeps, it like, keeps getting more sexual and then it just turns gross yeah it's so funny uh, i laughed out loud of that and here, yeah I, here's the test 
to me because I watch a lot of movies late at night after my wife goes to bed. Um, if I am laughing out loud in a movie while I'm alone, mm-hmm. that means it's a funny movie. Okay. Uh, and this one, I laughed a lot of that. And the other thing, shortly after that, when he's in bed with that woman, and then people charge into the room, and he goes jumping out of the window at the end. Do you remember? Yeah. He jumps out of the window onto the roof, and then immediately crashes right through the roof onto <laughs> yeah. the balcony below. And I burst out laughing. It's there's so much funny shit in this movie, but it's also so like you know you can tell it, there was a time you know like even for a goofy comedy someone was willing to put a lot of money into like the production of this this mm-hmm. movie like that early on that um that that hunt the the chase yeah. Yeah. is like it's crazy. There's so many people in costumes. There's so many horses and animals all at the same time. Yeah. And then the camera's like mounted to different horses. And then they got people looking right at the camera, which is something that happens repeatedly yeah. through the movie, including like some of it is so weird. Like there's a part in the movie where a woman finds out that the man she's been sleeping with might actually be her long lost son. And <laughs> yeah. she just sort of looks at the camera like, well, what are you going to do? It's a living. <laughs> yeah. That sort of thing. It's, it's so strange. And I loved it so much. Yeah. Uh, Josh uh, had seen all of the best pictures and so he regularly cited that as like one of his least favorite I think he did not have much patience for the silliness mm-hmm. of that it's film. real silly and so it was so my expectations were very low when I saw it. and then when I when I did, I was like, I'm enjoying this. I'm not super invested. It's light as a feather. Uh, I don't really care what's happening, but I am enjoying it. And it definitely has a modern sensibility, like much more than I thought it was going to. Yeah, like, and I'm wondering. The way they acknowledge the camera yeah. uh, seemed very, uh, very Tristram Shandy to me. Um, and it was the. To go back to, I'm surprised it won Best Picture. It's less because it's a comedy to me than it is what you're saying. It's kind of a trifle. That's kind yes. of the kind of the point of it. It's a great the, way of saying is that yeah. it's this huge production. Yeah. But like, no, there's this irreverence. No yeah. one's taking it very seriously you at all. Be like, why are you guys spending so much money on this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's. I mean, it's like he gave the assignment to like the kid at the back of the class. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and he just made uh, whatever he wanted to. I also love the harpsichord music. Um, yes, indeed. Cause there's like, uh, that's another thing. Um, and I'm, I'm going to review the Blu-ray. Uh, I started writing it. So I, I mentioned this like harpsichord music is so associated with the Renaissance era and is in so many movies of this kind that it's not a surprise they use harpsichord music, but it's this like manic frenzied thing that almost sounds, it makes it seem like you're watching Benny Hill or something. You know yeah. what I mean? Uh, and a lot of this stuff is, you know, there's sped up cameras. There's a lot of Benny yeah. Hill type type stuff. Uh, I was really bowled over by this movie. Uh, I also really enjoyed uh, Hugh Griffith, uh-huh. who, uh, who apparently was actually drunk. He plays a drunk and apparently was actually drunk a lot. I could see that. Um, um, yeah. And he was in that, uh, you know, in what, in going back and watching like the best pictures and stuff, he was also in Ben Hur and he actually won best supporting actor for Ben Hur. Um, and, uh, but, but such different, Characters and he's in Oliver as well. Like he's just he was like a staple of those movies, uh, and it in a way like his character in in Ben Hur is not necessarily humorous, but he's a you know he's a he's a big he's a bigger than life supporting character, but like nothing as 
genuinely yeah. ridiculous as Squire Western in Tom Jones. <laughs> now, uh, since you talked about it in context of the Oscars, you might know these things, but apparently Tom Jones is the only movie ever to have three women nominated for Best Supporting Actress in one year. Uh, yes, I believe like, so. How crazy is that, that there were only there are only three movies nominated for Best Supporting Actress and three of yeah. the slots were Tom Jones. And also, I'm not sure if this is the only time this happened, but uh, Hugh Griffith, uh, was that his name? Yeah was nominated for best supporting actor yeah. and he was the only one of the best supporting actor nominees whose movie was nominated for best picture that year. Hmm. That seems uncommon to me. Yes, probably. But I'm not sure if that's an only time, but, uh, anyway. Yeah. It's, um, uh, and then I know that like supporting actor, like the Godfather, like three of the nominees for supporting actor okay. were from the Godfather. Um, although none of them won oddly enough. Um, okay. Uh, and then finally, well, I think that happened. I can't remember what one, uh, I don't think best actor, best supporting actors. I don't, I don't mm. think Tom Jones won either. I think it was a kind of a split the vote type thing. Yeah. Um, like you're seeing here and I don't know if you're not following politics as much as you used to, but here in California, really all over the country, a lot of somewhat vulnerable Republicans are having, or, or Republicans that wouldn't normally have been vulnerable yes. are having democratic challengers. Yeah. California has a problem now where there are so many democratic challengers that they're probably going to split split the vote and these Republican districts are going to stay Republican because there's not one Democrat. Uh, but we've already seen some Democrats dropping out and endorsing their, uh, their former opponents to try and keep this Republican, uh, presidential nominee should have done a year and a half ago. (sighs) I guess two years ago at this point. Um, one last movie, and I'm not sure if you've seen this one. I wouldn't be surprised okay. if you've seen it because you're a big Orson Welles stan. Um, have you seen Compulsion? I have. Okay. Um, I really liked this. Uh, this uh, I don't want to uh, offend you as an Orson Welles fan here, but um, I really liked this movie until Orson Welles showed up. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, I, I kind of feel like he's making a he made a choice with the, with this character. So the movie, if you don't know is, um, even though it never says it's all the names and stuff are changed. Yeah. It's very much based on the Leopold and Lope yeah. case, even more so than rope or murder by numbers. Yeah. Um, like it's basically the exact Leopold and Loeb case with the names changed. Yeah. Um, and he's playing the Clarence Darrow part. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like he made this choice to be sort of like the world weary and wise. Yes. And what he does, and his, but his delivery of his lines is so at odds with the pace, the more lively, more naturalistic pace yeah. of the rest of the movie that it just like I feel like the whole movie comes to a halt, and it ends with this big climactic speech of his that I again I don't think he's being a lazy actor here. I think he's making a choice yeah. that just doesn't fit the movie. Like he is trying to give it, give, it, give his words like a quiet importance, mm-hmm. but it ends up like feeling like the movie fell asleep, I think. Yeah. It's interesting. I almost view it when I saw the film, one thing that I had known was that I don't remember if anything replaced it, but like that was the longest monologue in film history, uh, at that point. Oh wow. And <clears throat> so I was like, okay, Orson Welles delivering a long monologue. I can live with that. Uh, and so I watched the movie and I really liked it. And then I like that monologue as well, but separate. It seems like it. I, I almost can't view it as part of the film. Of course, it's a it's an important part of the film. But yes, I feel like tonally, the movie stops so that we can do this. Yeah, and then like, all right, let's get back to business. Uh, but no, by then, it's too late. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, and it's interesting because uh, I wonder if Wells just you know he has a natural theatricality to him, and I wonder if he thought like, no, I don't want to bring that to this character. I want to play him as kind of this 
just tired and like you said, world weary, which I feel like, okay, he's done that before. He does that in uh, man for all seasons. And I think he does great, mm-hmm. but he's only, you know, it's ba- it's a back and forth scene with somebody like world weary with a monologue is tough, especially yeah. if he is meant to be, stirring you know yeah. uh so yeah it's an interesting i like what he's doing i kind of i i'm I, as you know i'm a big fan of world weary performances <laughs> but i'm not sure if it's the right one for that uh that monologue yeah especially i mean the movie up until then is so like willing to get its hands dirty with the with how fucked up leopold and Loeb are. i'm just gonna call them leopold and Loeb. their names are uh, judd and Artie, yeah. um, <laughs> but uh in the characters names in the movie but um, and you've got Dean Stockwell in the Leopold uh, yeah. role, um, who apparently I, uh, I don't know. Why I'm obsessed with reading the IMDb trivia page, okay. but Dean Stockwell is the only surviving cast member from Compulsion, hmm. only one who's still around. Um, long live Dean Stockwell! I hope uh, he's great. He's great in everything. Um, but you've also got. Uh, I mean, as a huge opponent of the death penalty myself, mm-hmm. I like that the movie is very clearly anti death penalty. Yeah. That's one thing it actually comes down on, where like on one side on. Whereas it also has like interesting things to say about money or and about about wealth because yes. there's a certain or there's a lot of like condemning the public for being in a tabloid sort of way, especially fascinated by Leopold and Loeb because they're they want to see the, you know, the rich folks in Hyde park or whatever. Um, cause in 1924 Hyde park was a wealthy neighborhood. Um, uh, you know, get theirs. Yeah. Um, uh, but also it's, you know, uh, the movie recognizes they couldn't have afforded the Clarence Darrow <laughs> lawyer, uh, Jonathan Wilk, I think is the character's name. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if they weren't, if they weren't rich and it seems to, you know, uh, it, it seems to go back and forth on like uh, how it feels about money and justice. It, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's very, it reminded me cause I think I had seen reversal of fortune first, but it reminded me of that. Um, in that like, like, Oh my gosh, these rich people, look how sorted they mm-hmm. are, you know? And then like, yeah, one got Clarence Darrow. The other got, uh, Alan Dershowitz. Alan Dershowitz. Yeah. Um, that's a good movie, Reversal Forge. I haven't seen that in a long I time. I love it. Barbet Schroeder. Um, that is Barbet Schroeder, yeah. Is that your favorite Barbet Schroeder movie? Pro- uh, yes, undoubtedly. I think, uh, yeah, it probably it might be mine. Or I also like, did you ever see Our Lady of the Assassins? I didn't. That's a good one. I've heard it's great, yes. Um, and then I like Barfly, but not as much. Um, I saw Desperate Measures, which is way beneath Barbet Schroeder, <laughs> and I don't see an ounce of the filmmaker in there. Also, he made the aforementioned Murder by Numbers, the other, oh, yeah. the most recent Leopold and Loeb ish. That's right. Uh, I feel like we're due for movie. another Leopold and Loeb. <laughs> you mean a movie, mm-hmm. not, not a real. <laughs> no, David, I'm suggesting something. Let's you and me. Uh, pull our, pull you and me, the superior intellects. Um, all right. Uh, I don't have any TV to talk about. Okay. Uh, I do have one last movie. Um, but do you have any TV? Sort of. Okay, because our guest waiting. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, the movie is Vertigo um, for the uh, 60th, for the sixtieth anniversary for Fathom Events. They put it out in theaters, and so Jen and I went and saw it last night. I've never seen it on the big screen, and it is. I mean, obviously, it's an astonishing movie. I really am happy I saw it on the big screen. Wonderful use of color. It's always so hazy and dreamlike, and hypnotic uh certainly in the first half and then like once things get going uh it's it really 
it's really astonishing what Jim, what Jimmy Stewart let Hitchcock mm-hmm. do to him uh, or do to his image. You know, yeah. Like there are scenes where it's like, wow, this is really uncomfortable. Um, I could definitely see why audiences at the time did not want that. Yeah. Uh, even now, seeing Jimmy Stewart act like this towards this woman. And just not seeing her at all. Like even before he knows the truth, he's like, he goes, your hair, oh, your hair is the wrong color. It's like, oh, geez, this is very disturbing. Um, But yeah, it's it. And of course, wonderful score and all that. I'm just I'm very happy I saw it. Uh, They did mention in the intro, of course, that it uh, it supplanted Citizen Kane as the best movie of all time. And something that I found interesting in watching, it's like, yeah. Both movies are about guys who just kind of treat women a very specific way. And like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to do what I want to do and you will fulfill what I want, Mm -hmm. uh, which I thought was interesting. But anyway, so yeah, that was vertigo. And then last but not least, not survivor. I have not watched this week. Okay. Uh, today you did get some TV in though. Sort of, uh, on Amazon, I was looking for something to watch and they had a funnier die series called Zach Morris's trash. Okay. In which in each episode is like five minutes long in which somebody just a guy just takes one episode of Saved by the Bell and just shows what an absolute sociopath Zach Morris is and the lengths to which he will go to completely avoid responsibility and hurt everyone around him. And it is hilarious, partially because as I was watching, I was like, wow, those plots were a lot more complicated than I thought. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's 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 hilarious to watch. Zach Morris is trash. 